Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Because sometimes I'm so, I really think it's best for actors to shut the fuck up. Yes. <laughs> stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a lot of rhymes with Johnny, but here it is, Stage Door Johnny. And welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. I'm Jonathan Cake, and my guest this week is an American legend. He is the extraordinary Willem Dafoe. Now, you know that Willem is one of America's, one of the world's greatest and most distinctive screen presences. Uh, He's been acting in movies for 30, possibly nearly 40 years. He's got four Oscar nominations. Why hasn't he won an Oscar? Come on, Academy. Get on with it. Well, what you may not know is that for the best part of three decades... Willem went to a performance space in downtown Manhattan and worked for an avant-garde theatre company called the Wooster Group. Legends of the art scene downtown from the mid-late 70s all the way through to the present day. They're still going. Willem is no longer with them, but he has given the best part of 30 years, as he says in our chat, on a day-to-day basis, from acting and devising in these extraordinary pieces to cleaning the facilities. Um, It really wasn't a vanity project for a movie star for him. It was his primary love. He fell in love with the presiding genius of the company, a woman called Elizabeth Lecomte. And together they had this extraordinary creative partnership that was a long way from the mainstream of theatre, which I suppose most of my guests have sort of occupied a more traditional theatre space. But what Willem um, and the Wooster Group were doing for those years was something much different. It's quite hard to define it, as you'll hear in our chat. But um, labels like avant-garde and non-narrative theatre and non-naturalistic theatre are often thrown at them. He's no longer with the Wooster Group. He's no longer with Elizabeth Lecomte. But he continues to make this beautiful and very, very challenging theatre pieces with doyens of uh, the unconventional theatre like Richard Foreman and the great Robert Wilson. Anyway, we met the beginning of this month on a cold but beautifully clear Roman afternoon. We were in the countryside just outside Rome on um, Willem and his wife Giada's farm. And uh, we, we talked in Willem's office, which had been covered in straw and uh, sawdust and liberal amounts of alpaca droppings. Because as you'll hear, spring was in the air, new life was beginning to happen. And it seemed like the most wonderfully, the most wonderfully appropriate setting for a conversation with this most practical 
of actors. Oh, his beautiful Irish greyhound dog, Teo, kind of mocked our conversation as we spoke by just being so effortlessly interesting. It was almost like he was proving that theatre should be enacted, not (laughs) talked about. (laughs) And we could barely keep our eyes off him, but we forged on regardless. Gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Beginners to the stage, please. Mr. Defoe and Mr. Cake, this is your beginners. Mr. Defoe, time to leave the baby alpaca. This is your beginners. My big thing is, and I don't know if this is just something I'm stuck on right now, but I don't think about interpretation interpretation so much as, as experiencing something. I feel like if you can do it in a pure way, that's transparent. Someone else can relate to it. You are not deciding anything. That's why I always feel funny when actors talk about choices. <laughs> How do you make choices? You do what's necessary, you know? It's like the situation tells you what to do, and you react. And I think when there's too much deciding about, well, this character would do this, I think it's bullshit. And I think it's self-serving, and you're limited in your experience, and your intellectually. And theater should be better than that because it should address those things that you're kind of hinting at that we don't control. Because the truth is, if you talk about philosophically, think of all the things. An actor is a doer. And think of all the things that we do in life that we don't really control, but we think we control. Just look at our bodies. Think of all the shit that goes on inside our bodies that we've never had anything to do with, you know? Yeah. And if you recognize that and you take away the idea that you're in charge and that you're the absolute doer and the absolute decider and you kind of submit to this kind of feeling for reaching out to something beyond yourself, then I think something happens where you're addressing the shadow side, or you're addressing the side that we can't access in other ways. And theater can do that in those moments, because by accident or by intention, I don't know, this thing that you talk about, about a performer not knowing exactly what's coming off them, that's that's usually when it's beautiful. Yes. I mean, I feel like the, the difficulty I have sometimes with great actors is they develop such skill that it becomes kind of an inflexible language that they uh, it becomes showtime which is fun uh, you know it's fun to see someone very skilled at their craft yeah but there's got to be another element you know you have to subvert yourself you have to sabotage yourself how do you do that that's pretty hard but i think it has something to do with expectation and what you think your responsibility is. Ah. And if your responsibility as a performer is to be there and offer yourself up to an experience, then I think you have a much much better chance of really contributing by risking something that exposes you in a way that you probably don't want, but will be truer. Have you ever 
felt yourself I, I, becoming I really, too skilled. I'm really off and running there. You were. You were straight <laughs> in. I loved it. We, we normally have a lot of sort of pre-chat about my dog. what we just ate. <laughs> says, yeah, we what should, shit is that? The one of the most beautiful. <laughs> is looking devious about what, he, what we just heard. Uh, we're sitting here in... Um, this is a studio, right? It's a. It's well, my office. It's your basically. office. It's essentially Where your office. I do my reading, my studying, my uh, physical practice. Yeah, everything. And we should say that the 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 floor is liberally covered with straw. Yes. And a few um, uh, picturesque droppings. Yes. Of an animal, because you have you you, you and your <laughs> wife Jada have just <laughs> taken. What are we calling this? Taking custody of a newborn alpaca. In fact, I helped deliver it. I mean, uh, the mother did pretty much everything on right. her own. But uh, that's the first time I've ever helped. Uh, I've witnessed a, a baby alpaca sticking out of its mother and then uh, assisting in having it uh, My God. come out into the world. Incredible. It was pretty exciting. Incredible. And so it was cold last night. This this this, this alpaca is a, is a day old. Two a day days old, old, and it's a very cold uh, right now. So we were advised that it might be good to until I I make their house a little warmer by putting on some plastic and that sort of thing. That I offered my studio for them yes. first, the mother and the baby alpaca to sleep in. So they wouldn't be cold. So we're so. sitting amongst uh, 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 Willem's beloved dog, uh, Teo, has joined us too. He's a yes. magnificent Irish greyhound. And so there's a sense, sort of whiff of nativity scene. We're talking not long after Christmas. And there's a little bit of a sense of lowing cattle and some <laughs> newborn much. miracle having just occurred, which yes. is true. What, so what's that make us what's in it? that picture? I think with, are we two of the three wise men? <laughs> well, I'll take it. Oh, yeah. I totally take it. I've always had a thing for Joseph. I always felt like, oh, poor guy. That's, that's a great part, Joseph. There's a lot of comedy there. Were you having a baby? <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. Okay, um, listen, we're we're out here on your farm. This this beautiful part of rural Italy outside Rome. You just did that. You you just delivered this baby alpaca. And in relation to what we were just talking about, about this idea of not knowing, not becoming too skilled at things for fear of having a language that is inflexible. Is there a way in which doing this stuff, being out here in pretty new circumstances, right? right. Learning a lot of right. things about this landscape, right. how to run a farm, what happens when you've got to deliver a newborn alpaca? Yeah. What does that do to you, do you think, as a performer? Is there a way in which you feel uh, something? You know, it's, it's a tricky thing. Yeah, I do. Because performing is about doing things. It's about doing actions with a certain kind of concentration, yeah. a certain kind of devotion, a certain kind of openness. I mean, that's the bottom line. That trumps everything. Yeah. That trumps literature. It trumps uh, shenography. It, it trumps uh, physical stuff. That's the, you know, basically the soul of the performer right. is giving over to something, right. I think. Right. So when you're put in a situation where you're learning things, that puts you in the place of not knowing. Now, that doesn't mean you celebrate ignorance because the truth is you're moving towards trying to learn something. Yeah. 
and I'm I'm saying this is an ideal. I don't necessarily practice it, but I like the idea. You know, putting yourself in new situations gives you a certain kind of humility that is a condition necessary to learn. Yeah. That's all. The problem always is when people get good at stuff, they start to freeze a little bit. Huh. I think it's very difficult because, you know, you, you go towards something and not only do you get reinforcement for it, if you're good at it, but also you do it again right. in, that, in that kind of nature. Of, if, you want, yeah, sure. if, you want, if you want to get reinforcement, yeah. you know, we're yeah. like dogs. You, know? yeah. you do that thing again. Right. You know? I got a treat last time. Yeah, and you understand why that is, and you have to do that enough to sustain yourself. Yeah. You, know? you don't want to beat yourself up. But at the same time, you got to trick yourself into... Being a, you know, it's, it's beyond, not beyond, but it's different than beginner's mind. It's about being game. Yes. Uh, we talked about uh, Ethan's gameness. Yes. Yes, we were just um, talking about a friend important. of the podcast, it's Ethan Morgan. A previous episode I did with Willem's old friend and collaborator, Ethan Hawke, and talking about Ethan's extraordinary passion for the theatre particularly, but, but for all his enthusiasms are so kind of atomically, deeply felt. There's something glorious about being in that state of, 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 of sort of appreciation. You talked about getting, some actors getting too skilled and no, being inflexible. Because I'm blessed. I'm not skilled at anything. <laughs> no, no. And have I, you ever found I, yourself getting too skilled and you needed no, to no, do something about know, it? Listen, it's, as you know, Things that I know from the theater, because when I perform in the theater, even though with the Woost group, we, we, we spent many, we perform works in progress a lot. But once we had a show and basically had the structure and basically had the score of it, we performed that show and it was, it was really precise. So, so as we integrated more technology into our work too, right. it, it became very precise. So... The trick about the theater is always, of course, making it uh, fresh, making it new, you know, re-entering it. And uh, you do get that feeling that sometimes you get sick of yourself. But what a beautiful thing that is when you're in the theater and you say, I'm not going to do that again. It's not simply because you're tired of it or you're bored with it, but you need a different food, you know? Yeah. So you get to that moment that every night works, that if you take those two beats and then you look at the person, tonight, don't do that. Uh-huh. And I think that game is very much fun. One of the yeah. things that I love about the theater is unlike movies where often you approach everything and first impulse and there's very little rehearsal and everything is impacted by being in the, right. the room for the first time and you're, you're catching lightning in a bottle. With the uh, theater, you're reanimating. It's Frankenstein land. You know? yeah. You're reanimating things all the time. And I love that when I wake up in the morning, my whole day uh, becomes a preparation for that exercise at night. And that gives you real direction and a real sense of usefulness and gives you a beautiful way of living your life, not for show, but uh, uh, where the theater becomes a form where you can live in this super-focused way. 
Do you ever feel like does that sound uh, that sounds completely familiar, persuasive or? and very familiar? Okay. That business of your whole day being sub- subjugated really to the thing you're about to go do in the evening. Yeah. That's why I've always felt that even if a theatre piece only lasts for you know if you're in performance and only lasts for two and a half three hours, whatever it is, it feels like a job for a grown up. Do you know what I mean? In a way that I, I'm not, I've struggled to find filming even on the most you know absorbing and intense pieces. I don't know. It feels more infantilizing to me in some ah, way. I don't, you don't have quite that? relate to that, but yeah. I will say that, because there's a, something different, because when, you, when you're in a, most of my work has been with a company. And I was with this company uh, that was a true company. Uh, we worked every day. When I was not a film set, I was working at the theater, not only working on new works or, or maintaining uh, stuff in the repertory, but also just running the place, you know, down to cleaning toilets and the whole bit. I mean, I'm not, I'm not asking for, um, you know, a pat on sympathy. the back, because no. that was the fun part, you right. know, painting <laughs> things. And also, let's talk about the love of props. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about the love of props. I mean, I come from a tradition where the things I handle and the things I do are my responsibility. And one of my favorite things to do, and maybe this reveals something embarrassing about my personality or something, but I love doing a strong physical warm-up and then setting my props. Yes. Because it's like you're a magician. You're not setting tricks. Um, I like them so, just so, I, you know? Yeah. You, you like, um, you're playing with craft. You're playing with an expectation but you feel secure enough with that kind of preparation yeah. that you can jump off from it. Right. You wouldn't have a stage manager do it. This is, we're talking about the Worcester Never. Group, of course, Never. the famous downtown Never. New York theater. Okay, so you would be responsible for your props. I make up yeah. myself. Right, 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 right. You know, some right. shows, I'd have to get there hours and hours ahead. Yeah. You know? I really want to ask you much more about those 26 years. I think it was 26, yeah. 27 26, years. 26, 27. Who's um, counting? Who's counting? I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a it's lifetime. A yeah, it's a it's lifetime, and as you said, to be doing it every day. I, I I really want to ask you more about that. But let's go, just get back a little bit. It wasn't the yeah, traditional theatre in the respect that the thing that was really remarkable about it to me was, for the most part, it was a theatre made by people that weren't trained for the theatre. They weren't actors trained as actors. They weren't trained as directors. They were people that loved performing, right. and loved theatre, and loved making things. Right. But they came from different disciplines. Some were actors. I was kind of like a kid that didn't have a specific ambition, but always loved performing and performed when I was younger, you know, just amateur-wise, but for pleasure, you know. But most of the people really came from different disciplines. They needed something from it that was different than uh, like a career path or expectations that a normal theater experience might give you. So you come from the Midwest, come from yes. Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You find yourself in New York in like uh, aspiring actors do yes. in the mid late seventies, seventy five, seventy six. Yeah. And how do you gravitate to that downtown theater scene? How did you physically find it? Yeah, it's, uh, I ask myself this question, but I think I know the answer for once. I had had some experience working with a group in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh-huh. actually. And it was people of ex-students uh, of the university there uh, and some faculty there that were making theater pieces. But they were written 
they were still basically plays, but they were very adventurously uh, staged. And also, uh, it was a company-run space. So it was that introduction to the theater. And when I was there, in the lobby of our theater was a very good small press bookstore. And it was there that I started reading about Artaud. It was there that I started reading about Kratowski. It was there that I started reading about Bob Wilson and Richard Foreman. So these plays, these people were like in another world. But I was very turned on. And it, it sounded like what they were doing sounded like something that I was interested in. Now, having said that, basically I finished my time with this company it's time to move on because I'm ambitious and I want to go to Mecca, New York. Sure. And I think I'm going to pursue a traditional theater career, even though I've never really done that. And then I get around and it's almost a social thing. The people I'm hanging out with aren't doing that. The people I'm interested in okay. are going downtown. The people that are there are taking me to loft performances. They're taking me to dance performances. I got to stop. Do it. Do it. This is what no, no, what yeah, we totally can edit this, but what, what's also good about it is feeling like there is a sort of theater piece yeah, yeah, yeah. happening well, right next this, to us, which is this Teo. could be this could be uh, you know, squat theater, Teo and the Straw. It's great, yeah, yeah. This could be a performance, definitely. <laughs> it really could. Yeah, this could absolutely uh, actually you know, take away this literally. Wall. Put some chairs totally. out. We got some. We're slightly letting Teo down. <laughs> Teo is way more compelling. Yeah. Um, oh, well, we know that. So it's a social thing. Who did you want to hang out with? You're, you're 21, 22 years old, and you want an exciting life. And yeah. you grew up in the Midwest with no spectacular education. You've traveled some, but nothing spectacular. Yeah. And you want to face the world, you know? Yeah. So where do you go? First of all, you grow up middle class, but you're on your own. You have no skills. You have really very little training. So you fall about three social classes. And even though we don't talk a lot about class in America, um, you know, I'm living in a bad neighborhood. I'm meeting people that have a totally different background than me, both high and low, both criminal and, uh, you know, uh, saintly. These people are feeding me new information about the world, right. the world that they come from and the world they aspire to. And I get all turned down and turned on. So why the hell do I want to go back to my Wisconsin idea of being on Broadway or something and having a career in the theater? So I think that's kind of bullshit, this thing about headshots and, you know, tap dancing and all that <laughs> shit. I think, well, I just want to have adventures. I right. want to have the most fun, interesting, compelling right. life possible. So I, I find these people in these little places doing loft performance. Do you remember the first loft performance? Was, was there a particular defining one that you saw that no, really grabbed your attention? No, but group was very important. I mean, I remember seeing Rumstick Road, even to the degree that I oh. saw Rumstick Road. And at one point, the director, because it happens in an upstairs space, very tiny space, oh. very beautiful space, and this woman gets up right before the show, goes over to the wall and flicks the switch, which turns out the general lighting because it's just a big room. Right. And I think, who's that? And that ends up being uh, the director. That's who I followed for 27 years right, and I worked right. with 27 years. But part of that was, who is that woman? And then once I met her, 
I found the way that she was working and her stake in what she was doing was so personal right. and so so curious. You know, the curiosity was alive. Mm. Uh, this was not a career-minded right. thing. And when you're 22, at least for me anyway, it was just be able to have a roof over my head and, and be living in New York City. Right. It was a very exciting time. So you know? intoxicating. Was Liz LeCompte, who the, was the, uh, the person you saw flick on yeah, the light, yeah. was she in Rumpstick Road no, too? No, she directed she it. She just directed and, it. And uh, Spalding was the principal Spalding uh, Gray. Uh, for, uh, uh, performer. And his kind of performing was very deadpan, very... I wasn't particularly into him, but right. I was into the piece. Right. Know? So I often think, when I think about that particular time in New York, you know, late 70s, early 80s, punk, new wave, right. a little bit later, the birth of hip-hop and visual art mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. dance and those lines of words with bliss was it in that dawn to be alive ah. but to be young was very heaven I mean it must have ah. felt like that mustn't it when you to be young in that creative I'd ferment? like to be careful because ah. you know it's it's easy to romanticize yes. that time and I will say I was aware of that but I wasn't living that okay because I was with this shitty little theater group <laughs> right. working every day you right. know right getting up doing my physical practice right. and going and cleaning the toilets, oh. dancing for three hours, and then sitting down, smoking coffee. Smoking I coffee. mean, smoking I cigarettes and smoking. drinking. Yeah. We could smoke coffee, sure. I suppose. There's all sorts of things being smoked. But, you know, sit around, talk some bullshit, give yeah. us some challenges, yeah. give us some homework, get it on its feet. Right. And the, one of the keys about the Worcester Group is we, we were always making... When we'd rehearse, we'd always... It would be as if we were performing that night. There was no waiting, wow. you know? There was no, oh, that'll come later. Give me a moment to get better at that. It's like, no, we're concerned with what's going on, you know? So you devise a thing that day and you'd say, come sometimes, see it tonight? Yeah, sometimes. God, sometimes. how yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, it was really fun. Why were you dancing for three hours? Uh, physical stuff. And I was always attracted, you know, I, I talked about, I name dropped, uh, Grotowski the other day. When I was a college student, I was very attracted to his plastiques and uh, right. towards the poor theater. Right. And embarrassingly, the idea of a holy actor. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, I thought this this matters. Yeah. This is important. Yeah. This is this is something to do in your life. Yeah. And you know, it's all romantic, and it's all it's all kind of half understood. I, I can't really say that I truly understood, but it was sexy to me. Yeah. And when you're 22 years old, particularly, that's what's driving oh. you. So, you know, you're enough of a Midwestern kid and you're enough of a, yeah, white middle-class Wisconsin kid with parents that are like Eisenhower Republicans that you want to do well in the world and all that. I didn't escape that. So that was somewhere in the back of my head. But in practice, that was very far away from me when I was in New York in those early days. And it was practical. So you didn't have a chance. Of course, no, no, no one living through an era ever thinks, Christ, how amazing. I, I, I guess what I want to say is it was out there and it was happening. Yeah, okay. But I wasn't taking part in it. Okay. <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> really? It was only later. He's too busy when cleaning the When the Worcester Group got some sort of uh, profile or right, where right, I got right, some right, kind of profile right, right. that I started to know these other people that I were see. doing things. I and see. we were doing kind of cross-fertilizing. And we started having really great dancers working with on right. pieces or really great writers or right. a, a filmmaker, you know? 
then it got really interesting. Right. But really, at the beginning, we were just a bunch of idiot kids uh, trying to make something. We didn't have money. We didn't have time. Right. You know, uh, I did grow up in that area where kind of punk exploded, and I was interested in that. But at the same time, yeah, I've been to the CBGBs tons of times, but I wasn't hanging out there. Right. I wasn't right. really connected to that. I wasn't living that lifestyle. I was living a very... Not regimented, but, uh, you know, it, I was work. like a factory worker. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> right. It sounds exactly like that. But was it pretty tribal, too? Meaning, was it, was it a kind of an ideological divide? It between- was. The idea is that it was a collective, but we also had a very strong director. But it, the idea was basically that everybody participated, but you find out very quickly that some people are good at and not so at some things and not so good at other things. Right. And the truth is, we always had a very strong director. Right. But in principle, everybody was helping make the piece. Right. But really, it was more about the director steering us into situations where she had a very good nose for making things that either challenged people or set them up in a situation where they could do something that they really loved to do. The other thing that was interesting about that period was there was this huge, there was this kind of anti-professional kind of autobiographical impulse in uh, a lot of these things. And it kind of drove me nuts sometimes because some very celebrated performances just looked bad to me. (laughs) I, I thought... Maybe I'm just a redneck. Maybe I'm, or maybe I just have a certain idea about performance. But some people, you know, that uh, critically and popularly in these little circles, you know, uh, they'd say, wow, that performer. And it was like, ah, they have no skill, you know. They weren't fun to watch, you know. And the autobiographical thing, I also, I, something, maybe this has something to do with how I grew up. And the biggest punishment when I was a kid was if my parents wanted us to, you know, fall into line, they'd say, I think we got a problem here. We're going to send you to Dr. Keene. Dr. Keene was the psych- local psychiatrist. Okay. <laughs> that you did not want to do. Because if you went to the psychiatrist, <laughs> you'd go down that rabbit hole and you'd never come Jesus. out again, right? So the point is, we don't want to gaze too closely to at our lives. Right. We don't want to make material out of our lives. But the truth is, that's kind of what we were doing. Right. But right. we were doing it through the filter right. of theater. Right. We all loved performing. Right. We loved theater. We loved the event. We loved doing things. We loved making things together. And that's what we were doing. And that's also, I mean, I'm kind of loath to kind of explain what Worcester Group was doing or is doing because it's a lot of things. But, you know, people talked in terms of deconstruction of text. You know, we were like, What's that about, you know? The deal was that if we wanted to do a play, we didn't have the skill or the interest in doing the whole play and having to, you know, do the setup and then that climax and then we wanted to go to the good parts. I <laughs> <You> see. <laughs> Basically. So it was kind so of... we do excerpts and things right. and we'd play around that and then build a piece out of that. Ah. And part of it was about why, was a reflection of why we love those things. Right. It was, a pure, points and- it was a pure, in fact, one of our pieces was called LSD, Just the High Points. And it basically, the main text was Arthur Miller's The Crucible. And we took the parts that we wanted to do. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's the best he explanation. Came. He came he at did. one point, And he was very nice. 
And then the next day, his lawyer called, and they uh, uh, wanted to put a stop to our Cease performances. Cease and desist. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Cease and desist. And then we got a writer who wrote a text that we performed on top of his text, so his text was obscured. But it scanned the same. So we were performing his text, but we were obscuring it with another text. Being spoken at the same, same time. time. Oh, that's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. That's and, and later, I don't know whether it's true, but I've always said later that he kind of was like, well, maybe I was, maybe I was too, you know, hard on them. Right. Maybe that was a good exploration. God, how fascinating! You came to New York <clears throat> with the idea of having a conventional theater career, which I which, think so, uh, or, or making my way in the world. Yeah, and and yeah. all I knew is I'm, I, you know, I was the kid that like to perform, you know. When you started working this intensely with the Wooster Group, and as you say, it was a daily discipline. You just had to attend to stuff, get shit done. Yes. Were there ideological, aesthetic reasons why that became less and less attractive to you? Or could you not bear the thought of going into more traditional narrative pieces after that because you must have got as you became this huge downtown star you must have the the more traditional theater must have wanted to seduce you away for all sorts of things much less than you think (laughs) (laughs) i don't believe that's true you know because they say that that's that you know no one ever Um, came to you and said you got to do yes sure they did and and i remember very early this is Quite a little confession, but I think it's far enough away that it's no big deal. A friend got me an audition because it was his idea. He was basically a producer on Albee, directs Albee. Mm. And Edward Albee, who interested me and interests me, you know, this was someone I studied when I was a kid, you know, uh, was directing some of his own plays. And he was doing, they were mostly short plays, but he was creating a little company and having them go on tour and do kind of a repertory of his shorter plays. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And the guy said, I can get you an audition. And I said, okay, but I was already at the Wooster Group and I had fallen in love with uh, Liz, you know, uh, the director of the company. So there I am in New York living this life, you know. It's a poor life, but it's an exciting life, you know. And this guy says, calls me up one day and says, Edward would like to see you tomorrow. And I think, fuck, okay, what am I going to do? Just meet? He said, no, you got to prepare a monologue. So. I go to my humble little apartment and look to see what Edward Albee plays I have. You know, this is pre-internet and all that. And I can't decide. And I call up a friend who's a good friend, and he has even more Edward Albee plays. And we end up spending basically the whole night looking at Edward Albee plays, trying to decide a scene to do at 10 o'clock in the morning. So somewhere around 2 o'clock, I kid you not, maybe early, but this was a whole day affair. I said, I can't decide. Why don't I do the classic Jerry and the Dog monologue from Zoo Story? Story, So I go to uh, whatever it's called, Schubert Way or whatever, and go to an office. Edward's there, and I haven't slept. And I'm all jacked up on coffee, and I barely, you know, the memorization is a little iffy. And I get in there, and to make a long story short, I get there and I feel okay. I, I, you know, it's rolling along. And then I just fucking blank out. And Edward Albee starts prompting me. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I take it back. I get through the thing. It's probably terrible. But he saw something he liked. But I didn't know this. I was humiliated. And, I, and then I'm ready to leave. And he says, oh, uh, and Willem, uh, could you come back here? Did Mark tell you? Apparently, he had seen me in my underwear because there was a scene with a strong man in American Dream. Okay. And I'm humiliated. And I think I've fucked this audition up. And now I'm asked to come back and strip down to my underwear. So I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And I'm angry, you know? And I'm like dropping my pants and like that, like that, like that, like that, like that. Okay? And I leave Shulbrin Willem Alley. just did some very aggressive mime <laughs> stripping there, which, by the way, I may never be able to unsee. Keep going. Yeah. And I remember saying, I'm never going to do that again. Right. Do that kind of audition. Oh, it felt disconnected. Yeah, right. And the next day he called me and said, would you go on tour with us? But I didn't go right. because that I was wrong. too involved with the Worcester Group. But also something had happened in that. You felt there was a transactional thing in that moment uh, which no, didn't but feel I'm good enough to you? I'm an optimist that I can separate that out. Okay. I, I was quite flattered that he, even as I bombed, he wanted to do something right. with me. Right. And whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. Right. So I considered heavily and right. I thought, well, maybe... This is my calling, you know? That's the thing. When you're young, you know, you're looking for your way to apply yourself. You're trying to find, trying to find out what you're sort of meant to do. Right. And I thought it was some sort of performing, but you didn't know in what arena or why or why. So it never became a cycle, a sort of ideological aversion. You, you thought, you never felt no, like, no, that theater doesn't work for me. Ah, sometimes. Okay. I mean... I feel like there's, you know, the one thing I learned, and maybe this is so boringly obvious, but the thing I learned at the Wooster, I learned a lot, lots of things at the Wooster Group. The Wooster Group formed me, informed me, and then went deeper with work with Richard Foreman, uh, Romeo Castellucci, and, and Robert Wilson, because they were all, the uh, Wooster Group was influenced by those people. Right, right. It's about doing and making things. It's not about showing and telling things, right. you know, because I always feel like the theater... You know, it's not a fair thing. The audience is there. They want to see something. And the actors or the playwright or the, you know, are dumping stuff on them. Right. You know, you got to be there with them, you know, you, or you got you to gotta, uh, risk something. You've got to put something out there that you don't know what it is. If you're an actor, you can do that. Maybe not as a director or a playwright or something. But in these performances, we knew what the structure was, but the inside of it, we didn't always know. Right. You know, it's like Robert Wilson famously said he's never told an actor or asked an actor what to think. Right. I think that's, that's interesting. Yeah. No, I, I've said it before, but the pleasure is the pleasure of being a dancer or, or an athlete. You know, it's about... It's about doing things. And maybe that's limited. And maybe I'm missing a whole aspect. But for me, an aspect of performing or acting that's important. Mm. But for me, one thing I do know is when I connect with an action, you get a superhuman concentration mm. and you have a kind of open-heartedness and open-mindedness that's almost impossible to get in life just because it's... It's framed, you know. The expectations and uh, intentions are, are not what it's about. 
because you're in it. Uh All that stuff drops away in a funny way. Right. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Okay, that's the end of the first part of my chat with the amazing Willem Dafoe. What about staying up all night to study for an audition with Edward Albee, blanking in front of Edward Albee, being prompted by Edward Albee, then asked to drop your trousers for Edward Albee? That is an actor's story. Please join me for the second part of my chat with Willem. We'll hear what he thinks, what goes through his mind every time he throws out his yoga mat of a morning. We'll hear how the theatre has affected his, his acting in movies and his movie career. We'll hear why, why actors should sometimes just shut the fuck up and why also they shouldn't. And who said... This is a disputed idea. Who said, that'll do, pig? (laughs) Please come back and join me for the second part of my chat with Willem Dafoe. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in Stage, stage, stage door Johnny He knows that there's no more